to Political Misfits on Radio Sputnik, where we bring you news, politics, and culture without the red and blue treatment. My name is John Kiriakou, and I am here in the studio with my co-host, Michelle Witte. Get ready to go against the grain. Lots of good guests today. I mean, we say that all the time, but seriously, these are we have a lot of really mm-hmm. great guests today. We're going to talk about some weighty issues, too. There's been a lot of news, Michelle, about this uh, this purported letter from the uh, Progressive Caucus mm-hmm. to the well, president. It's a real letter. Yeah, it's a yeah. letter. Yeah. But it was a letter that was sent in July. Well, was it sent in July or was that, it? That's what the former chairman of the Progressive Caucus is saying on Twitter this morning. It was I sent in, it was written in July. Yeah. And then they were waiting to get 30 signatures and then, and no, then just sent it when they and, when and, they got to but that. But then there was no response from the from the White House. And then um, time passed and all of a sudden it became public uh, yesterday. And now everybody's talking about how they walked it back. Well, he said they walked it back because... Because uh, events on the ground changed. Mm-hmm. This was current as of July. Um, it's not really current as of now. But the bottom line is this. What they were trying to get was a commitment from the White House to talk to the Ukrainians about sitting at the negotiating table with uh, the Russians and trying to work out at least a ceasefire. That's still a good idea, I think. And we're actually going to talk about that with Two of our guests today. Uh, we're also going to talk about uh, labor issues in the United States. We have Dan Kovalik, who's going to join us to talk about child labor, slave labor, which is something that I think is very important. You and I were talking about this offline. Um, slave labor in prisons is enshrined in the Constitution of the United States, mm-hmm. right? So slavery is still legal in the United States. And if you happen to find yourself in prison, they can force you to work hard, long hours for zero pay or little pay. I said in, in my second book, which was something of a prison memoir, um, that uh, I was paid 16 cents an hour. I ended up getting a raise to 25 cents an hour. But, uh, you know, and yeah. my attitude was you get what you pay for, right? <laughs> you know what, though? Percentage-wise, that's a very big raise, John. Yeah, yeah percentage-wise, it was. No, wait, and- I'm genuinely confused about what you're telling me about this letter. Because yeah, it's, da- it's dated, dated October 20, 24th. 24th. Yeah. I, I, I think that the description has been, it was people who have signed it are saying, rightly yeah. or wrongly, I don't know if they're lying or not. Yeah. Oh, I they're signed saying, this, this in July. Dra- yeah. Well, I signed they, it in October. They, yeah, exactly. Right. So they were waiting until they got to 30 signatures. They sent it. They sent it yesterday. They posted it on Twitter that, yesterday. That sounds like, like They bad didn't send it in July. Yeah. Yeah, I guess. Yeah. I don't know. I mean, I'm not sure how much less relevant this is uh, today than it was in July. And I think it's really, I mean, now the story is all about the backlash, right? And, um, you know, as The Hill says, uh, Democrats are worrying about the fallout from the move they consider puzzling, worrisome, and in some cases downright infuriating right before the midterms. Again, the the move was simply to say, we would like it if along with all of this money, which we are not objecting to. Right. You would pursue direct di- diplomacy, pursue the type of diplomacy that is uh, the only kind likely to lead to any kind of negotiated solution. Right. That's what we would like to be a condition on the tens of billions of dollars we are not saying we are going to stop sending. It's just so it's outrageous that anyone has to walk this back. And, at all. you know, when you've got when you've got, Nan- <clears throat> excuse me, Nancy Pelosi and the rest of the House leadership preparing to use. Ukraine or the Ukraine issue as as a hammer to smash the Republicans in the uh, midterms, then you can't have your own people saying, oh, we want peace. 
Right. The Democrats might want peace, but they're going to want it after November the 8th. And they obviously don't want it at all. Right. right. And again, right. like, here's the thing. There's I mean, there's good language in this letter, right? They're saying we're we're. Yeah. Responsible for tens of billions of dollars of U.S. taxpayer money and military assistance, we believe uh, such involvement in this war also creates a responsibility for the U.S. to seriously explore all possible avenues. I mean, I think that's exactly right. If you are going to be the reason the conflict is able to continue, you do have a responsibility. And I think yes. all the people criticizing it saying, no, 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 it's not our, you know, you know, during the that's, that's not our place. Like, like, again, cr- being the sole reason the conflict is allowed to continue should come with no responsibility to try to work towards its end. I think yeah. that's bizarre. Anyway. When, uh, when I was still at the CIA during the George W. Bush administration, I used to say with some frequency that I had never seen an administration that worked so hard to not engage in diplomacy. Like, what did those State Department people do all day long, but just sit around and, and twiddle their th- their thumbs? Yeah. And that's what we're seeing now in it's the Biden administration. Trying to freehand draw maps of different continents yeah, just for fun. Exactly. Just, just for know, fun. Yeah. Pass the day. I would like to say Danny DeVito coming out, mm-hmm. tweeting, uh, $60 billion for war. How about a few billion to replace water systems in Jackson and Flint, Michigan? That's right. Uh, I thought that was pretty Good cool. on Danny DeVito. Yeah. So we're going to talk to Mark Sloboda about this and other issues, the situation on the ground. We're going to talk to um, uh, Dan Kovalik about this and about these labor issues and and child labor, slave labor, slave labor, underfunding of labor regulation bodies. We were talking yesterday very briefly about yeah. the NLRB mm-hmm. not having had a, a funding increase since 2014, I think you yeah, said. Yeah, I think that was it. Just outrageous. We have um, we have an expert from the University of California at San Francisco. Uh, that's going to talk to us about COVID and monkeypox. And we're going to talk about Proposition or Initiative 82, I mm-hmm. guess it's called, here in D.C. and whether the D.C. Council will cave to the restaurant industry uh, and uh, again over choice, or, uh, overturn the choices of voters. I don't even live in D.C. and this is important to me. Yeah. This it's, is going to be a good conversation. I mean, the fact that they did... I, <sighs> I'm very curious about this. I support this move, right? I support uh, eliminating the tip to minimum wage. Yes. Uh, but it is, I am very curious what they plan to do this time around to prevent that from happening. And again, it is also pretty egregious where you put, you put something to the voters. They say, yes, this is what we'd like to do. Yeah. And then the and DC say, council uh, goes, we don't like that. Ah, never mind. Yeah. Never yeah. mind. Not and again, bears mentioning it's a uh, celebrity Chef Jose Andres, who is, uh, you know, one of the forces leading the fight against these initiatives. Yes, he doesn't want to have to pay no. minimum wage to the people who work in his restaurants. Nope. You're right. Nope. You're I, right. Listen, John, I got to say, uh, you won yesterday. Oh, Remember yeah. when we were, wait- we were waiting for the big press conference? <laughs> it was going to be about such a big deal. Sure and do. you said, and I should have known, but you said, oh, the DOJ just dropped this, um, this indictment <laughs> all in Chinese. in Chinese. It's about two people trying to bribe something about Huawei or whatever. And I was like, well, surely they're not. Surely all this hoopla isn't about this, the Huawei case. Seriously. Surely this is stuff about elections and national security be, right? and all this. Stuff. Well, they said, I mean, that's what the initial yeah. reports were right. about people talking. It was going to be people something familiar. big. Yeah. Nope. Just not even getting a mention in like the morning news roundup podcast. No. That's how. Nothing. Why did they want. What did they think was going to happen? You know, honestly, like, what, what I, and I don't mean to sound cynical, but I think that they thought they could make political hay out of this. I get with regard to China, mm-hmm. just get a bunch of like, right. oh, yeah. The, but that's assuming that anybody in America even knows what Huawei is or cares and cares that 
the Chinese would like to see their CFO released from a Canadian prison or and have this case what, go su- away. A subsidiary of a Chinese company was right. doing business with Iran yeah. in violation of U.S. sanctions. Who cares? Nobody. Yeah, that was uh, that was embarrassing. Well, that was Chris Ray there, I guess. Because yeah. it was oh, it's FBI agents right. that they allegedly tried to bribe. To bribe. Yeah, okay. that's right. Yeah, we're going to talk also about. Um, well, actually, we'll talk about it now. There was an, another school shooting yeah. in St. Louis, and there was a just a grisly airstrike in Myanmar yesterday. The government there, you know, I learned from from Bruce Fine that Myanmar is the only country in the world that has never had a single day of peace since it became independent. It's been at war with itself. Uh, so, you know, the, the Burmese military, they're pure-blooded Burmese, and they discriminate against these ethnic minorities, the Karen uh, being one, the uh, Kauthuli, I think they're called, or another. There are like six of them, six different ethnic groups in uh, yeah. minority ethnic there groups. There are transnational ethnic groups all over all Southeast over the, Asia the, and Southern, exactly, and southern China, and they overlap all of these different just, national Just like borders. in South Asia, yeah. right, with, uh, you know, Pashtus and Tajiks and yeah. whatnot. So— um, there was a concert going on in one of these ethnic areas last night, and the uh, the Myanmar Air Force bombed it and killed 80 people, including a direct hit on the stage, which killed all the performers. And apparently the singer is this major, excuse me, major figure in this independence movement that was putting on the concert. So more violence in Myanmar. Terrible. Yeah, really, really crazy. Um. There's also a story. I mean, it's, it's interesting. The New York Times, of course, who do they care about? It's Venezuelans. Um, but the the Times noting that uh, because the Biden administration has decided it's no longer going to allow Venezuelans to stay in the U.S. Mm-hmm. if they cross the border illegally mm-hmm. uh, to seek asylum. Now Venezuelans can be included among those who are uh, returned to Mexico yes. under um, Title 42, uh, the pandemic era. Rule that was such a problem when the Trump administration enforced it. But now it's the answer. Yeah. And is it fine when the Biden administration enforces it? So they have said, um, you know, there were a bunch of Venezuelans in transit who are now just sort of stuck, Mm -hmm. uh, stuck south of the border, Mm -hmm. um, trying to reach the United States, trying to get through a door that closed on October 12th uh, that made them eligible to be returned to Mexico. And so, yeah, just a. Highlights how arbitrary that is and also how arbitrary the criticism of it is. That's right. Again, Biden does it. Doesn't matter. Trump does it. It's fascism. Surely there's something in between, right, that is a reasonable response to this. And we we used to have a general consensus on these issues. Yeah. As recently as the 1980s, you know, there was a a broad-based bipartisan uh, immigration reform bill that was passed into law in 1986 under Ronald Reagan— with the Reagan White House working with Tip O'Neill, the, mm-hmm. the Democratic uh, House Speaker. Well, I mean— Those days are gone. But not if you listen to commercials, some of these <laughs> midterm commercials. We're going to talk about this a little bit later. The—I um, can't think of any better word—the uh, scourge of bipartisanship. <laughs> no, I mean, uh, we talked about Denver Riggleman yes. uh, making an ad for Abigail Spamberger. Yes. We talked about—it's Marco Rubio appearing in an ad for Raphael Warnock. Not appearing himself, but being invoked in an ad for Raphael Warnock to say, like, he'll work with anybody. He'll mm-hmm. work with Marco Rubio to get this highway finished, That's you know, right. whatever. Um, you were talking about Sarah Palin. Yeah. 
asking for voters to choose as their second choice for her, not a Republican candidate. Right. But the woman who beat her in the yeah. special election, yeah. Mary per, uh, Peralta. And it does make me wonder. I mean, I'm curious. I, I fully understand why this is being used. Right. People imagine that bipartisanship is the way to get things done in yeah. Congress and that working together. And so, sure, in in theoretically, working together is a way to get things done. I don't think the problem uh, the problem that stands in the way of improving the material conditions of most Americans is not a failure of Democrats and Republicans to work together. Right. It is a failure of a political party that will champion the things that will actually make those changes. Mm -hmm. Um, But it does kind of feel and maybe this is getting, uh, you know, out ahead of my skis a little bit. But it does feel a little bit like there is a push by the center to. Um, eliminate either side of both the the radical side of both party that right now uh, it mostly is radical because it is perhaps uh, reconsidering the levels of funding for Ukraine. Mm-hmm. Right. I mean, these are the dangerous radicals who are being called out by the center of both parties. And I kind of wonder if this is a I don't know. I wonder how much this is part of these these efforts. Right. And how much yeah, is sort of like. Uh, the neoliberal victor is kind of pulling together and trying to get rid of anyone who challenges their worldview in any mm-hmm. way. Again, not that the progressive caucus is some radical force in American politics. And, you know, this but, is something that the country went through in the late 19. Well, not even the late, but throughout the 1930s, really up until the start of the of the Second World War. And the the neo the neos, the conservatives and liberals um, ended up winning. And then after the war was over, they continued winning and built budgets through the 50s, the 60s, the 70s. That's what led to the Korean and the, and the Vietnam Wars. Yep. One other political point uh, before we go to, to break. Uh, there was a debate last night in the Texas, I'm sorry, in the Florida governor's race between Mark DeSantis and Charlie Crist. The latest polls have DeSantis crushing Crist 54 to 41. Uh, last night's debate was interesting and there were a couple of fun moments, but it's not going to change those numbers. Tonight, there is a debate that I would argue is even more important in Pennsylvania between Mehmet Oz and, uh, and John Fetterman. The Fetterman campaign has already released a, a statement saying it, it meant a statement meant to lower expectations for Fetterman, saying that he may have some processing problems. He may have to ask for for questions to be repeated. His his responses may be garbled, but bear with us. Uh, That's not the kind of press release you want to make. But here we are. That race is tight. (coughs) Excuse me, 51. I'm sorry, 49 to 46 in that race. The race for governor in Pennsylvania is not close. There was a Marist poll released today and Marist tends to be a Republican poll that shows Herschel Walker now beating Raphael Warnock 49 to 47. So that bears closer watching. Yeah. I, I know we want to get to our next guest. There yeah. was the most idiotic conversation on Meet the Press this weekend about <laughs> morality in the huh. U.S. And like uh, Americans used to care about the personal morality of their uh, candidates. Yep. Did they? Yeah. Well, they used to I pretend mean, look, to. Yes, exactly. And the candidates, I mean, are you sorry, telling me Ted Kennedy? Right. 
was a like, Kennedy, personally for that upstanding matter. moral character. Yeah, right. exactly. Come on. Yeah. It's a weird I remember people fantasy. freaking out because Reagan had been divorced. Yeah. How, he can't even, I remember I remember hearing he people won. say, he can't even manage a family. How's he going to manage the country? I, right, but he became president because they did vote for right. him. Because exactly, exactly. It's just so stupid. It's all phony. Stupid. It's anyway, all funny. All right, let's let's take a break. All right, we are going to take a break, and we're going to come back with our first guest, Mark Sloboda. You're listening to Political Misfits right here on Radio Sputnik. Stay tuned. We have two full hours of news for you. Misfits on Radio Sputnik, where we bring you news, politics, and culture without the red and blue treatment. I'm John Kiriakou here with Michelle Witte. Fighting continues in and around Kherson today as Ukrainian forces continue to engage Russian forces in the area. And the propaganda war is going full steam over which side might or could or maybe will launch a dirty bomb at the other. Meanwhile, 30 progressive House Democrats, as we told you in the intro, urged President Biden to pressure the Ukrainian government to get to the negotiating table, but some of them began walking this back. We're going to continue to follow it. The Russian side is rumored to be ready to at least have talks with the Ukrainians about a ceasefire, but Ukrainian President Zelensky has been uninterested. We'll get into the details of that. In other news, former American women's basketball player Brittany Griner's nine-year prison sentence for taking THC oil vials into Russia and her luggage was upheld today by a Russian appeals court. Greiner will serve her sentence in Russia unless she becomes part of a prisoner swap, which, of course, has been rumored for some time now. We're joined by Mark Sloboda. Mark is a foreign affairs and military policy analyst. Welcome back, Mark. John, Michelle, thanks for having me. It's always an honor and a pleasure to be on Political Misfits. Mark, I want to begin uh, with this move among Democrats on the left and Republicans on the right to pressure President Biden to push the Ukrainians to the negotiating table. Now, this is something we have been talking about since the first day of this conflict. This was unexpected, though, in Washington. And frankly, Democrats were hoping to use the issue against Republicans in the midterm, which I think is why Nancy Pelosi immediately said, no, 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 no. We don't want to pressure the White House to do anything. Um, you know, it's easy to accuse the, the Russians of being weak on I mean, the Russians or the Republicans to be weak on Russia. But this is the first crack in the American anti-Russia front. What do you make of this? Is this a long-term thing or a pre-election move? Yeah, I don't see this as anything serious. These 30 progressive Democrats, uh, you know, maybe trying to make this an announcement uh, to appeal to uh, some of their voters uh, who may what they believe may feel this way in the run up to the elections. They've already shamefacedly tucked their tail between their legs and walked back their statement saying uh, we are united as Democrats in our unequivocal commitment to supporting Ukraine in their fight for their democracy and freedom, which must mean Azov neo-Nazis and the banning of 15 opposition parties representing the entirety of the voices of East Ukraine. That that That's uh, the 
democracy and freedom, I guess. Um, uh, so uh, we explicitly clear in our letter we will continue to make we support President Biden and his administration's commitment to nothing about Ukraine without Ukraine. And he, they also said that yeah, diplomacy is a tool, but there are other tools. OK, right. All right. So. Yeah, I, I don't take any of this seriously. Even this noise about the Republicans, uh, McCarthy, uh, in the right. um, is he going to uh, be able House. to stand up to his uh, his caucus? That kind of thing. All he said was that they that, that he's not interested in a blank check. He wants a little bit of accountability. Mm-hmm. That is not walking back at all. And he has voted for every spending measure that has been yes. put forward so far. I don't expect that to change. Uh, I don't I don't take any of this as seriously. U.S. foreign policy is not going to change. It's not going to change in the Congress, even if Republicans gain control of it, uh, other than that they may ask for a little bit of accountability. Uh, and I don't know, maybe they'll give 45 billion instead of 50 billion. I right. mean, that, that, that's that's the kind of ridiculousness uh, that we can expect. Uh, U.S. There is broad bipartisan support for this. Uh, We have heard from the the, uh, chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, Mark Milley, uh, that they view the conflict in Ukraine that a a Russian victory there would mean the collapse of their rules-based order, by which they mean U.S.-led Western global military hegemony. Yes. Right. That's the stake. They, there is no walking back. You know, uh, it, this is as a, a global order shaping uh, conflict uh, that's going on right now. And NATO is fully engaged as participants in it. And um, uh, we're nowhere near the end of it. Well, that kind of leads to my, my next question. Zelensky said last week that any agreement with Russia would have to include the return of all territories, including Crimea, future security guarantees, reconstruction paid for by the Russians, and accountability for what he called Russian war crimes. This seems to be a non-starter, just a throwaway statement. Is this just an opening negotiating position, or, or should we consider the policy of talks dead even before they were to begin? Yeah, I, I think he also included a, a rainbow-striped unicorn for each and every <laughs> exactly. Az- Azov Theonauts. <laughs> I, I mean, this is, I, of course, a ridiculous position, but uh, what it, it indicates is there is no appetite uh, for any type of negotiations at this point. They have the, the Kiev regime has repeatedly made clear at all levels that this. Uh, uh, you know, is something that will be decided on the battlefield and that the diplomacy will only come at the end of yeah. a clear military victory. Yeah. We have heard the same from leaders in the EU. We have heard the EU uh, uh, high foreign policy muckety muck Joseph Burrell say that this will be won on the battlefield. Yes. Right. I mean, when, when that's kind of things coming from the EU, as well as the US and the UK and, and the Kiev. And to be perfectly honest, I don't think that there's any appetite for a serious uh, negotiation process uh, in the Kremlin either. Uh, They see the war as uh, going their way now that they've finally removed their idiotic self-limitations and have called up at least 300,000 reservists. Another 70,000 volunteers uh, have joined up and the uh, the the new uh, campaign to uh, cripple uh, the Kiev regime's uh, electricity infrastructure to hinder 
their um, uh, logistics, their movement of, of everything around the country, military-wise, uh, by trains, uh, has already been reduced. Some 40 to 50 percent of it has already been irrevocably destroyed. Uh, so uh, there, there's I, I don't see that where Russia would gain anything at this point uh, from from uh, uh, serious negotiations either. There's no appetite on either side. Mark, let me ask you what exactly is going on on the battlefield. Um, there was reporting about fighting today in Kursan and Bakhmut. Uh, even in the biased accounts of the Washington Post and the New York Times, it's unclear what exactly is happening there. Can you give us an update? Sure. I mean, there's been fighting every day in Kherson and Bakhmut for the last month. Mm -hmm. I mean, nothing nothing of that has changed. Um, The Kiev regime had already, as of three weeks ago, massed uh, what they said was a 60,000 strong force uh, with the intention of taking Kherson city uh, to this point. And that that is a part of the, you know, that is the majority of the reason why uh, Russian forces uh, have been evacuating Kherson city. Um, they have claimed that the Kiev regime uh, it intends on blowing up the Kohovka Dam reservoir, right? Um, and which would flood the entire theater and put Harrison uh, City under several meters of water for uh, somewhere between three and five days. It would severely hinder uh, Russian efforts to uh, keep their forces supplied and and would uh, allow. Uh, would would theoretically allow uh, Kiev regime forces to to seize most of of Kherson city, but uh, the fighting is actually still far away from the city. And in three weeks, those new defensive lines that uh, uh, Russian forces withdrew from almost a month ago to shorten their defensive lines uh, while they're waiting for the reservists to be brought into the theater have held. Completely. There has been no uh, loss of of any uh, uh, significant territory whatsoever. And actually, um, everything I've seen is that all of the attempted advancements, whether they're recon in force or serious attempts uh, by the Kiev regime forces, have been smacked down hard uh, by Russian aviation, artillery and rocket system advantage with with really – brutal casualties on the Kiev regime side. And we have seen numerous videos posted by their own people to their own telegram channels of them and um, thousands of of foreign quote unquote mercenaries uh, refusing to charge across the steppe anymore into open, uh, you know, a decimation uh, by the uh, superior uh, fortified Russian uh, defensive positions. Uh, Russia has already started um, draining water from the Kohovka Reservoir Dam to lessen the tidal impact uh, if if the dam is destroyed. Um, and over the weekend, we did see 19 HIMARS uh, missiles be launched at the dam again. Wow. Uh, and they have done this for months now. Uh, but it is a Soviet-built dam. It is very solid. Uh, only three of those got through and hit and uh, through Russian air defenses, and they did not uh, do any significant damage. And this this is this uh, is not just a dam. It is also a hydroelectric station and a bridge. Mm-hmm. And they've been trying to destroy that bridge for three months now with 
rocket systems like the HIMARS, and they haven't succeeded. I don't expect them to anytime soon. It would take something uh, more like uh, uh, a serious uh, uh, floating mines uh, being sent towards it or perhaps underwater drones pass, packed with serious mm-hmm. explosives. Uh, and that is what has been speculated. But um, uh, we've seen no moves on that regard so far. So the the front lines have not changed in Kherson. They have not changed in the northern theater on Lugansk. The Russian forces have held as well the new defensive lines there now for weeks. Um, And in Bakhmut, um, the um, uh, Wagner and the other forces there have made, uh, you know, uh, slow incremental advances, minimizing casualties on their side, and they're considering uh, uh, continuing the encirclement uh, of uh, Bakhmut and uh, Avdiivka uh, in the south. These two fortress uh, cities. Uh, Kiev regime has been pouring more reinforcements into Bakhmut, uh, especially. Uh, especially in the last week or so, but they have not been able to capitalize on those reinforcements at all. They attempted uh, several attempts to take back territory, but were repulsed. Uh, So uh, right now, as the Russian reservists start to filter into the theater, especially those who just finished their service a year or two ago. Um, the Russian forces are holding so far. I thought they might have to withdraw further, but that has not proved the case. The battlefield is has been stable for uh, you know two to three weeks now, uh, and all the attempts of the uh-huh. the uh, Kiev regime's counteroffensives have failed. Uh, I mean, it's not to say that they won't succeed, you know, with some titanic sure. effort, sure. some some extreme event like the blowing up of the dam. But everything I have seen, and and I have think I've been pretty uh, clear when I saw Russian positions weak, uh, you know, previously at Krasny Limon and the like. Um, uh, you know, uh, talking with you guys uh, about the positions, I do not see uh, positions at this point uh, that are in danger of, of of forcing another Russian withdrawal like we've seen previously. Well, this this leads to my next question. I I can anticipate your answer. Uh, there were reports today from um, pro-Russia military analysts. Uh, like the War Gonzo Project, this is one that was quoted as saying in their in their daily military updates that the Ukrainian army is ascendant in Luhansk and that the head of the the Wagner Group or Wagner Group, however you say it properly, has warned President Putin that his generals are not leading the armies on the ground like they should be. Um, first of all, do you believe that? And if you do, what should we make of it? What tactical changes do you think need to be made? Um, I I do not see that at all. Okay. Um, I, I I I for uh, you know upwards of of uh, uh, a month now the Kiev regime has had numerically superior forces in that area, but they were somewhat disorganized mm. after Russia withdrew from all that territory and they had to take it, and uh, they managed to force their way ac- across the Oskol River. But at, at the new defensive lines that Russia drew up. Uh, you know, upwards of three weeks ago already, they they, they haven't moved an inch uh, that I have been able to see. In fact, there have been several uh, settlements that Russian forces uh, have launched, uh, uh, not major counteroffensives, but small tactical moves on the battlefield and actually taken some settlements back. So I'm not seeing there at all. Reinforcements uh, are already trickling in from the reserves, uh, as I've said, and and these positions have solidified uh, in terms of, of both manpower 
power and the fortifications uh, that they've built so far. Um, and I, I, everything that I've seen says that the Russian defenses that were in theater are holding. The reinforcements are being brought in. Um, and uh, the Russia's preparing for a winter offensive. Uh, that now that everything the Kiev regime's uh, counteroffenses have run out of steam, and as to this nonsense being printed in the Washington Post about Prigozhin uh, in the Kremlin, mm -hmm. I, I think we just have to assume that that is wishful thinking disinformation. Yeah, yeah I wondered about that when I when I first yeah. saw it. I wondered about their access. Uh, we said last week that it's likely that the United States and Russia are going to arrest more and more of each other's citizens. And that appears to be happening. The, the U.S. arrested uh, two more Russian citizens last week and is, has charged them with, I don't know, odd, odd uh, crimes involving trade and Bitcoin and just weird stuff. Today, Brittany Griner had her sentence upheld by a Russian appeals court. Do you see a prisoner swap coming up in the near future? We had thought that there would be one a month or two ago, but nothing ever came of it. Yeah, I don't I don't believe there's any any political, uh, uh, you know, move on either side. They, they simply lack the political will to exchange prisoners. As you pointed out, actually, the U.S. is uh, effectively kidnapping because they don't have jurisdiction. Uh, more Russian uh, citizens at this point, uh, including from from third countries. And in let, let's be frank, for every uh, American a Russian citizen that is uh, taking, uh, you know, being taken in this fashion. Russia will be looking for every opportunity to do the same to an American. Mm -hmm. One one last question for you. We saw reports really all over the media uh, over the weekend and, and earlier this week uh, saying that the U.S. has positioned its, excuse me, has positioned its 101st Airborne uh, in. Um, in Romania, just near the Ukraine border. This is the first time that the 101st has been sent to Europe since the end of the Second World War. Um, what do we make of this? Yeah, this is, uh, I think, serious. Um, from the interviews that I believe it was CBS conducted with Correct. the 100 Air Force Airborne there, they said that this was not a peacetime deployment, that this was a combat deployment. They were expecting to go into combat against Russian forces. Um, they listed the two uh, situations where that could possibly occur, um, and that was uh, Russia attacks Romania, NATO, which I think we can assume is not going to happen, no. and an escalation on the Russian side in Ukraine. Uh, that was completely uh, unspecified. Um, and we also heard from CBS that uh, warnings that Russia would try to take Odessa, which was a, a very uh, particular point seeking to deny um, uh, the um, Kiev regime, a port, you know, their last major port city. Yes. Uh, I, I think Russia will probably try to take Odessa sometime next year. But I think it's very odd that CBS brought this up, particularly in the context of the 101st Airport. Uh, we've heard a lot of, uh, from the Russian government very frantically uh, arranging calls between their defense ministers and the defense ministers in succession of France, Turkey, the UK, and the United States, warning they have intelligence that the Kiev regime is about to use a dirty bomb false flag. Right. We have heard repeated statements from 
uh, uh, Western officials, including uh, you know uh, U.S. Uh, top figures, uh, that a a, a uh, nuclear incident of sorts, such as a low yield nuclear weapon going off, uh, would uh, lead to a massive NATO military response. We heard Joseph Burrell once again in the EU saying that that would lead to uh, uh, you know. Uh, the annihilation of Russian forces, which are pretty big words yeah. coming from the EU foreign policy, high policy, muckety-muck that doesn't even have a military at his command uh, from the EU. Uh, but anyway, what I see is this is the type of um, red line signaling that the U.S. gave to their jihadist proxies in Syria. This is the one thing that, that if – uh, Assad did it would make us, you know, uh, uh, right. conduct air the strikes. The red line. Right? And this is exactly what we're seeing right now. Um, and the response uh, completely dismissing this uh, when the Kiev regime has been launching uh, a, a drone and uh, artillery shells at the Zaporozhye nuclear power plant for over two months now, uh, attempting to create exactly such a de facto dirty bomb uh, incident by focusing targeting on spent fuel containers, which they mm -hmm. failed to do so far. It says to me, I've wrote about this actually already at the beginning of October, the possibility. I saw the signaling. I think this is what is going on. And I think that that will be used as a pretext uh, to move uh, um, a direct uh, uh, Western military intervention yeah. into West Ukraine. Probably not um, all of NATO, but certainly a a, another coalition of the willing or idiots um, and the U.S. and Poland uh, might be in there. I What I see as a possibility in the future is the 101st Airborne being sent in to secure Odessa before Russia moves on the city. Um, and while moving into West Ukraine, the Kremlin may make a lot of noise but not do anything because they know that unlike East Ukraine, the population in West Ukraine there completely hates Russia and Russians and everything. Uh, so they don't really have much desire to move into that territory to begin with. Odessa is another story entirely. I think they view it very strategically. And also it has a Russian-speaking, Russian-leaning population right. that was repressed uh, early on in 2014. And that to me is the biggest potential World War III flashpoint, Odessa. That's that's what keeps me up at night is warning about the potential uh, for Odessa in the next six months to a year. Thanks for telling us that. I'm going to keep my eyes open as well. That was the voice of Mark Sloboda. Mark is a foreign affairs and military policy analyst. You're listening to Political Misfits on Radio Sputnik. Stay tuned. We'll take a short break. Misfits on Radio Sputnik, where we bring you news, politics, and culture without the red and blue treatment. I'm Michelle Witte. I'm here with John Kiriakou, and we're getting into a, a local story, but a local story that has some economic implications and democratic implications, frankly. Mm -hmm. Washington, D.C. is trying again to enact a law that would phase out the idea of tipped wages. Uh, so this, this is a practice that allows employers to pay their staff below minimum wage if there is the expectation that they earn tips. This initiative, Initiative 82, is the second attempt to do this. 
in 2018, the city passed a ballot initiative that would have done the same thing. uh, And then the city council overturned it. So uh, if passed and enacted, this initiative would phase out the subminimum wage for tipped workers over the next five years. And by, I believe, 2027, require their employers to pay tip staff the same minimum wage. It's not going to make tipping illegal. Right. It won't. You can still tip. Although people, you know. If, if you know that you are not directly paying somebody's salary, presumably yes. you might tip a little bit less. Opponents say this would be burdensome for employers. And one of the arguments they use is to say, you know, <laughs> employers who em- employ tipped staff are already required to make up compensation if an employee's tips don't bring them up to the minimum hourly level. Uh, look, maybe I was just incredibly stupid when I worked in the service industry. I bas- I didn't know this was a thing. I don't know how you do it. I don't know who's doing it or what's happening. Yeah, exactly. So I suspect this is often ignored. I'm going to ask our next guest this, but I I think this argument is garbage. But I obviously I support this initiative. Um, We are going to ask our next guest about uh, what arguments opponents of this bill are bringing to the table and whether uh, there is hope that even if it does pass again, that the council won't do exactly what they did last time. We're joined now by Ryan O'Leary. He's a longtime service worker. He was laid off from his downtown restaurant job during the pandemic, and he's a former organizer for One Fair Wage. Thanks for being here, Ryan. Yeah, thank you both for having me. Um, talk to us about the the level of support there is for Initiative 82 and whether you think it, it is going to pass this time. Yeah, so it's been really great. You know, we're out every week weekend canvassing, knocking doors, um, talking to voters. And uh, it really seems as if there's universal support in this city for it. And like you said, um, 2018, it passed overwhelmingly by a 10-point margin. And um, yeah, we're hoping just to run up the score this time and you know get it passed by an even larger margin and hopefully keep the council and Congress from meddling in it at, like they did last time. You know, I'm curious. Uh, anecdotally, I know a couple of people who were opposed to the initial proposition and have come around. And unsurprisingly, uh, these people were bartenders who are the very top of the heap of of tipped employees. And I I wonder if you could talk to us about how this initiative will affect different service workers differently, and also whether opponents of this initiative have been trying to exploit those differences, right? Because certainly some people. Some people, I would say a minority of of people in the service industry, make a lot of money in tips. Uh, But that doesn't mean that everybody has a reliable paycheck. Right, exactly. And you bring up a really great point that um, most of the people, uh, the tips workers that the opposition has kind of uh, lined up to voice their opposition to this are usually bartenders that have been in the industry for decades they are often likely bar managers as well, so their jobs aren't completely uh, based on tipping. And, you know, I think it it, it leads to the public uh, forgetting just the the wide variety of different roles that there are that are paid the subminimum wage. So, you know, a lot of people don't know it's not just the server and bartender at your restaurant that are making a subminimum wage. It's also the food runners, the bussers, the barbacks, um, a lot of immigrants who are barely making the full minimum wage um, after tips. So because bartenders and servers do need to share a portion of the tips that that you give them directly with this staff that helps kind of support them in doing the work that they're doing. But it's also not just restaurants. You know, this includes nail techs, uh, barbers, uh, hairstylists, valets, some delivery drivers even. And so 
I think when you look at the whole picture of all the people who this will um, help, it's going to help everybody. And, you know, I think bartenders may see a small increase in their take home pay, like especially the ones you're talking about, the ones making, you know, 70 to 100K a year. Uh, but this this really isn't meant to uh, bolster their wages. Um, it's really meant to help the people on the other end of the system that are barely getting by. Mm-hmm. This I want to ask you a question that is just personally interesting to me, but it is about this argument that uh, a measure like this isn't needed because employers who pay some or all of their staff a subminimum wage are legally required to make it up and that they do this. And I really want to know, is this happening anywhere? Honestly, I don't I, I don't know how it would happen. I don't know who enforces it. I just think it's a, it's a really garbage uh, opposition. But again, maybe I was just totally oblivious. But I worked at a couple different restaurants and I attended a couple different bars. And I don't think I'm I don't think of myself as someone who's unaware of the world. But I also don't like looking at paychecks. So, you know, is yeah. this actually happening? Yeah, well, is this a valid argument? Well, yeah. So in in a perfect world, if your restaurant is doing everything correctly and by the book, then yes. If over a two-week pay period, your wages plus tips do not average out to at least the full minimum wage, yes, they do need to make up the difference. Now, I think an important point is that it's by pay period. So if you work a Saturday night and make a lot of money, um, that money is end up a lot of times ends up having to subsidize your your slower days during yeah. like you know like weekday lunches. And personally, from my experience, I can tell you at my last restaurant job, the first week I was working there, they just had me on lunches. They didn't have me closing. I made far below the minimum wage. Um, and after you know two week pay period was up, and they had realized that, they called me into their office and basically were like, "Why are you lying to us? Why aren't you declaring your tips correctly?" Like you must have made at least like they they made it my problem that they were going to have to make up the difference in my wages. Um, But more broadly, you know, the Department of Labor found that uh, restaurants have uh, four out of five restaurants in the country are currently in violation of at least one wage or labor law. So I think it's fair to say that um, there's probably a lot of restaurants that aren't doing this. And especially as a waiter, you know, if if you wanted to figure out if uh, your boss was stealing from you, that would involve saving little slices of receipt paper from every time you clock in and out, mm-hmm. calculating your tips, calculating how much you had to tip out to your support staff, averaging that all up. And then even if you were able to maybe figure out, you know, or it looked like you 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 were a victim of wage theft, God forbid you made a mistake and you try to bring it up to your boss and now they think you're a problem employee. So yeah. needless to say, this is something that's going to really help uh, decrease the ability for wage theft to happen in the in the restaurant industry, especially. Yeah. Which is, of course, the the greatest, like the biggest crime by any measure in the United States right. every year right. is wage theft. Oh, yeah. 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 More than all other forms of theft combined. Yeah. Um, so let me ask you, obviously, the D.C. public was on board with this idea five years ago. Uh, if what you're saying is true, they are even more supportive of it this time around. Uh, but last time, the restaurant industry pressured the D.C. council to overturn it. And I wonder, you know, what kind of pressure the industry would be able to put on the council to do that again? And whether you think, uh, you know, there's a chance that it won't work this time. Yeah. So. 
You know, I wasn't involved with the first initiative to do this, Initiative 77, but I do think there was a lack of organized, directly organizing tipped workers that time around to support this. Um, we've really, or I've really made an effort to make sure that that was the priority of our campaign was reaching out to tipped workers because what had happened last time around was it was it was very much like a union busting campaign. You know, every restaurant um, in their pre-shift kind of meetings with workers would basically have these, you know, captive audience meetings where they told them, look, th you're going to get paid less. No one's going to tip you ever again. Mm -hmm. um, and they scared a lot of tipped workers into being against this. And, you know, that was that, that really was demonstrated where there was a council hearing where tipped workers showed up in droves with all the same talking points from the uh, the no on 77 people. And that council hearing went until like two or three in the morning. Um, luckily, that's not going to happen this time. Um, you know, I've been talking to the council members pretty regularly. Six of them have signed a pledge saying that they won't uh, alter, amend or otherwise violate the spirit of this initiative if and when it is passed. And uh, beyond that, a majority of council members are personally voting for it this time. So I think we've come a long way. I think the pandemic had a lot to do with it, but I'm really excited for us to join the uh, other seven states that have already done this and eliminated the subminimum wage. I wonder if the experience of those seven states can can tell us something about what this would do in D.C. and what you know proponents of this initiative uh, think the effect would be in D.C. on the city as a whole and not just individuals who work in the service industry. Uh, what has been the aftermath in, in places where this has been done and what would you anticipate for the Capitol? Yeah, so um, there's a lot of direct and kind of obvious benefits. I mean, the poverty rate amongst tipped workers drops significantly. Uh, the rate of sexual harassment on the job drops significantly. Um, but also, you know, the, just the general the the general poverty weight uh, falls, even amongst people who are not tipped employees. Um, racial and gender pay gaps tighten. And also in these states during COVID, they had a more resilient restaurant industry, uh, less restaurants closed, uh, more were able to weather the pandemic. And they have higher restaurant industry growth rates across the board, both pre and post pandemic than states with subminimum wages. So, you know, it's really hard to uh, see any kind of um, negative uh, outcome from this. And it's really, you know, demonstrated in a lot of the opposition's arguments, which are just, you know, a few op-eds from bartenders or bar managers and not any kind of actual data um, like this, uh, like the Pro Initiative 82 campaign uh, puts out. I happen to notice that The Washington Post has come out against this. Uh, unsurprisingly, they were against Initiative 77 the first time around. Yeah, I'm wondering if I'm wondering uh, what big names you've got on your side this time around. Yeah, I mean, we have a lot of great endorsed uh, or groups that have endorsed us. Um, you know, the D.C. Labor Council has endorsed us, Democratic Socialists for America, both nationally and the local chapter, uh, D.C. for Democracy, um, Jews United for Justice, uh, Jobs with Justice, you know, every kind of local grassroots org, if you're from D.C., um, they're all behind this, including the larger labor union, you know, um, contingent in D.C., whether it be the local hospitality labor unions um, or, you know, Unite Here nationally or the AFL-CIO. So we have a really great team uh, and uh, we're going to win tipped workers some really nice things. Yeah, that'll be really exciting. I, I wish you the best of luck and I hope the, uh, the council lets it stand this time. Mm -hmm. Ryan O'Leary, uh, you want to tell our listeners where they can go to find more about I Initiative 82? 
Yes, um, you can check us out on Twitter, um, but due to our handle being a little bit wonky, I would just say <laughs> go to our website. It's betterrestaurantsdc.org. Um, you can find out all of our information. Fantastic. Thanks for joining us, Ryan. Thanks for having me. Uh, hey, John, I know we have a, a couple of minutes left. I forgot to uh, mention this. Oh, here we go. Uh, coincidentally, just around the same time that letter was being issued by the Progressive Caucus, mm -hmm. uh, the Washington Post which really never, <laughs> never found a right side to pick in a fight, um, issued a, a, an editorial opinion saying this is no time to go wobbly on resisting Russian aggression. Ugh. I and remember it, that. I remember that editorial. I mean, it was yesterday. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. Yes. Yeah, yesterday. Um, go wobbly. No time to go wobbly. It doesn't appear to have been any kind of response to the letter by the Progressive Caucus. This is more about uh, the terrible possibility of Republicans taking over one or both chambers of Congress and then wanting to ask some questions about how money is spent and whether there should be some conditions on it with regard to Ukraine or, you know, perhaps turning the faucet down to uh, less of a torrent and more of just a steady stream, something right. like that. Anyway, so seems to be uh, maybe just sort of serendipitous, right? But taking the opportunity to castigate uh, the radicals on one side of the aisle for not supporting the war enough. Uh, I would expect we'll see another response castigating radicals on the other side of the wild. Without for, a doubt. Aisle for not being. Um, yeah, Without enthusiastic enough about about supporting. And this that, war. that reminds me very much of of Margaret Thatcher's call to George H.W. Bush uh, after the Iraqi invasion of Kuwait, telling him now's not the time to go wobbly, George. <sighs> she was the one who bucked him up. Maybe that's what they're referring to. I suspect it is. Uh, the Post is also fretting about the Latino vote. Right, because it's not falling into line for the Democrats. Shifted toward Republicans in 2020. Uh -huh. Will it again? Uh, I don't. Yeah, I mean, yeah. I think when you take people for advantage uh, or take advantage of people and, and their voting habits. Yeah. Yeah, sure. I'm going to give that a strong uh, probably. <gasps> Hold on. Breaking news. Uh oh, the Congressional Progressive Caucus has withdrawn. Oh, a my goodness. Signed by 30 House liberals and sent to the White House Monday. Boy, oh, they boy. fully withdrew it. Jayapal says. Uh, the letter was released by staff without vetting now. I wonder what, how what, much of come this on is now. true. What, I what honestly vetting? do. Now, you know how they do this? This is called the Dear Colleague letter. What they'll do is somebody, one, one member or two, will write a letter that always begins, Dear Colleague. Dear Colleague, as a member of the, Pro uh, the Progressive Caucus, here's what we want you to do. And then they submit it for signatures. And so it went around. It got its 30 signatures. Yeah. This has nothing to do with staff. You know, staff goes office to office. Hey, will your boss sign this? Yeah, the boss signs it. Yeah. And then they send it off. When you get to a certain threshold, you send it off, right? You can send it off, you know, just to, as a letter from yourself or you wait for everybody in the in the house. You know, whatever you want is yeah. the bottom line. So to blame this on staff, it's that like, come on, pretty, man. It seems pretty sleazy. It I is. mean, she says... Uh, at the same time as saying it was released by staff without vetting, she also says she takes responsibility for it. She says, uh, because of the timing, our message is being conflated by some as being equivalent to the recent statement by Kevin McCarthy threatening an end to aid yes. to Ukraine if Republicans exactly. take over. But also he didn't 
threaten that. No, right? he didn't. I mean, again, not a fan of Kevin McCarthy. He didn't. Screw him, vote mm-hmm. him out of a job, whatever. But he didn't do that. No. No, he said we have to take a deeper look into what this means over the long term. What cowards. So some wow. of the signatories are saying timing and diplomacy is everything. I signed this letter on June 30th. A lot has changed since then. I wouldn't sign it today. Oh, we have to keep supporting that. Blah, blah, blah. Honestly. Yeah, this is bad. This is bad for the Democrats. But it goes to show you again, yet again, what little authority progressives have in in, uh, the Democratic Party. But they could have just, I mean, I guess what you're saying is the leadership of the party overall came down and said, you've got to withdraw this. I got to say, it makes them look, I mean, who's this Liz Truss over here in the progressive caucus? But but then when when Nancy Pelosi walks up to you and says, hey, do you like that uh, seat on the Appropriations Committee? Mm -hmm. You want to keep that seat on the Appropriations Committee? Mm -hmm. Then you're going to do exactly as I tell you to do. And that happens every single day. There's just not a backbone, honestly, to be found among any of them. Nancy Pelosi, you know, for all my criticisms of her probably has the biggest, mm-hmm. you know, because she do- I don't agree with her principles, but she does stick to them and yeah, defend them most of the does. time. I mean, she's willing to bend on uh, individual Congress. People should be able to trade whatever stocks they like. And don't you peasants try to get yeah, in our way? She'll she bend on that one week. a little bit. But uh, man, this is they yeah, this really is are an embarrassment. And it does make them look like uh, it, it makes that, you know, it every time they do this, it makes all the arguments against them look valid, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. So they just validate validate all of the criticism that's been coming instead oh, sure. of challenge it. Vapid, it shows, wishy-washy liberals who don't know what they want. There is no actual principle about, you know, all the things that they said about how, you know, the longer the conflict goes on, the more chances there are that it's going to explode into something that could be catastrophic. Mm-hmm. We, we see this. We think diplomacy, direct diplomacy with Russia should go on with this. And all of this is true. Why is it, it was true in June, but it's not true now? Mm-hmm. I mean, exactly, exactly. It's yeah, that's a, that's disappointing. What a disappointment, even for Democrats. As I say that, I just got an e- email from Adam Schiff. I don't know how I got on Adam Schiff's mailing list, but it is the most embarrassing thing. All right. We're going to go come back. We're going to bring this up with our next guest. We've got a whole bunch of labor stories and uh, some covid talk after that. You're listening to Political Misfits on Radio Sputnik. We're live in D.C. We'll be right back. Political Misfits on Radio Sputnik, where we bring you news, politics, and culture without the red and blue treatment. I'm Michelle Woody here with John Kiriakou, indulging in a few ad hominem attacks. <laughs> Progressive caucus. I, I, I hate everybody. Of, That's the bottom line. Just a line. bunch of wusses, man. So we're going to talk about this uh, letter from the Progressive Caucus that has just been withdrawn. Uh, we are going to talk about labor in the United States. There's child labor. There's slave labor. Mm-hmm. There's the NLRB running out of funding. Mm-hmm. We're going to talk about the midterms in general. There's a lot to get into. And getting into it all with us is Dan Kavalik. He's a labor attorney, a human rights activist, and an author. Dan, thanks for being here. Thanks for having me. I mean, well, I want to talk about this letter. So just just moments ago, the Progressive Caucus formally withdrew the letter that they had sent to Joe Biden. And by the response, you would think the letter had urged him to high five Vladimir Putin and hand over <laughs> all of Europe. 
right? Uh, but I want to say, because I don't know if we've mentioned before exactly what some of the language in this letter was. Uh, the letter said, given the destruction created by this war for Ukraine and the world, as well as the risk of catastrophic escalation, we also believe it is in the interests of Ukraine, the United States, and the world to avoid a prolonged conflict. For this reason, we urge you to pair the military and economic support the U.S. has provided to Ukraine with a proactive diplomatic push, redoubling efforts to seek a realistic framework for a ceasefire. That sounds good. Um, they also wrote, if there's a way to end the war while preserving a free and independent Ukraine, it is America's responsibility to pursue every diplomatic avenue to support such a, lo- a solution that is acceptable to the people of Ukraine. Such a framework would presumably include incentives to end hostilities, including some form of sanctions relief, blah, 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 blah. The alternative to diplomacy is protracted war with both its attendant certainties and catastrophic and unknowable risks. I mean, honestly, one, I'm very curious, one, what you make of the language in the original letter. And then the fact that they have withdrawn it after less than 24 hours, really confirming every criticism of them. It's so stupid. Yeah, well, it is disappointing that they withdrew it. Um, I was excited that they at least wrote the letter. I agree with you. It's very measured. There's nothing radical about it. I mean, Joe Biden himself said about a week ago, we're on the verge of a nuclear apocalypse. It's not like anyone's disputing that assertion. And one would think if, if, if Biden believed that we were on the verge of a nuclear apocalypse, he might do something to prevent it, like try to engage in negotiations. Um, obviously, this letter is, is, is asking for nothing more or less than, than sanity and rationality and what John F. Kennedy did during the Cuban Missile Crisis. You know, it, it's shocking, absolutely shocking that people are being condemned for wanting peace and, and wanting diplomacy. I mean, that's really how really bad things have gotten in this country. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I just it blows my mind. The other thing that I I wanted to ask about is so, I mean, there was there was immediate pushback uh, on this letter. To me, most of it was online. And then you see some of the Democrats coming out feeling embarrassed that they had signed it and it had come out now. But, you know, the, the caucus partially justified their move by citing polling showing What they're proposing is what the American people support. And you can find all different polls that will tell you all different things about how Americans feel. But generally, it seems to me the more nuanced a poll is, the more you get support for this idea, Mm -hmm. right? That, yes, Americans generally favor uh, continuing to support Ukraine militarily and economically, but they also support uh, undertaking uh, you know, whatever seems expedient and fruitful to bring about an end to it. Uh, and and so I kind of I, I feel like the immediate wave of people on Twitter calling the caucus, you know, appeasers and Putin lovers and criticizing them for not waiting until after the midterms, which is the funniest one. That's not representative, I think, of of most of the country. But it is representative, I feel like, increasingly of of the only base that gets any attention. Do you know what I mean? And so I, I wonder I, I wonder about this backlash and I wonder about the response because I, I don't know, so much of this conversation seems to be happening online. I mean, I honestly wonder how many people who were not looking at Twitter last night even saw that this had been printed, uh, that had, had been sent, you know? 
Well, I agree with you. And this has nothing to do. I mean, I agree with you. The electorate, I think, both in the U.S. and in Europe, is getting sick of this war. They're, you know, they're, the economies of all those countries are in bad shape. People are suffering. Uh, and we're sending billions of dollars to Ukraine uh, for a war that, by the way, is going to be lost in any case uh, by Ukraine. So all we're doing is uh, wasting money and, frankly, wa wasting lives in the process. Um, and I think most people see that, even despite the fact that the mainstream press is terrible on this issue. I mean, they this is probably the worst coverage I've ever seen yeah. of an international conflict. Right. Um, and still, I think the American people are hip to what's happening, that they're suffering. And meanwhile, we're, we're wasting billions of dollars in Ukraine. And I think as each day goes on, the polls are going to show more and more that people are against it. So, yeah. The truth is the Progressive Caucus probably would have gotten a boost in the polls from this letter. They're not answering to the electorate, though. This has nothing to do with the, any base except the base of the defense industry and, uh, you know, the, the ruling class. That That's who they're kowtowing to, not to the electorate. I mean, you just think— who in their right mind would believe the U.S. has spent something like uh, $75 billion so far now on this conflict, but we don't have any interest in it and we don't have any control over what happens and we don't want to be involved? I mean, what you, you have to have just fallen out of the womb to accept yeah. that as any kind of possibility. And the idea that, you know, perhaps the United States would be engaged in a conflict that some other third party is supporting to the tune of billions of dollars and yet saying, no, 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 oh, we're just, hey— do with it what you will. We don't have any we don't have any interest here except a sort of general interest in democracy and security. It's just idiotic. And so, again, this idea that, you know, it's uh, for the U.S. to be directly engaged with Russia is somehow a, a capitulation because we shouldn't be involved that way. It just none of it makes any sense. Well, no. And again, this 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 was not even true during the height of the Cold War when the Soviet Union existed. The U.S. never took the position that it would not talk to the Soviet premier. That was never a thing, right? The, the, the U.S. leaders always understood, even the most belligerent anti-communist leaders like Ronald Reagan knew that you had to keep lines of communication open with the Soviet premier for no other reason than the fact that it's a nuclear, another nuclear power, right? And yet that all that's been thrown out of the, out of the window now. Uh, with Russia and Putin. And we are where we are. Again, to quote Joe Biden, apparently on the verge of a nuclear apocalypse, there's talks of dirty bombs and whatnot. The time for diplomacy is now. And again, the fact that uh, people are being criticized as appeasers for wanting that is just, it's really unfathomable. unfathomable. So do you think this has an impact on, on the midterms? Uh uh, Democrats seem to have some momentum uh, early, I, I guess, last month, earlier this month. Uh, but that heat seems to be fading at a bad time for them. But, of course, hanging over any attempt to get the pulse of voters is the sense that polling is just fatally flawed and we still haven't figured out how to how to make it more representative of what the final result will be. And so I wonder what you are predicting for these midterms and also whether you think, uh, the, you know, whether you think this will have made a difference. Well, I think it will make a difference. And I think what's going to make a difference, frankly, is the fact that there's some Republicans who are saying they don't want to 
keep funding Ukraine. Mm -hmm. I think the Republican Party will benefit from that. I think the Democratic Party will get beaten badly in November, and in part because they're supporting this war in Ukraine. I mean, that is the irony. They think by being more bellicose about this war, they're going to do better. In fact, my prediction is they will do worse precisely because of their support for the war. I do think it is very possible that an un sort of underanalyzed part of Donald Trump's appeal was uh, is criticism of some U.S. foreign adventures. Uh, not that I think Americans really vote on foreign policy very much, but, you know, the, the people whose family members are dying in these wars, I think, are a lot of the people who who ended up voting for him. And I think that it's possible. Yeah, I think th I think you might well be right. I think this might be a lot less popular uh, than people imagine or at least less motivating. Right. Even if you sort of think, OK, yeah, I'm not that, you know, I live comfortably. I'm not too terribly affected by inflation. Uh, I'm not too concerned about these like, you know, giant numbers flying and they don't affect my my direct life. So fine you know, continue to support Ukraine, but I'm not voting for a candidate based on their support for Ukraine, you know? Yeah. Although I do think, again, when they hear the word nuclear ap apocalypse, I mm. think they may decide to vote on those issues. Yeah. And look, I don't think Americans like war. I mean, they didn't like the Vietnam War. That didn't help the Democrats. In fact, it destroyed Lyndon Johnson's presidency, right? Sure it, it really destroyed Nixon's. I mean, the whole Watergate cover-up was about covering up lies about Vietnam. Um, Americans don't like war, uh, unless it's a, a war of necessity, which we haven't really seen ever since World War II. Um, so again, this isn't about appeasing voters. This is about doing the bidding of the defense industry, um, and pursuing geopolitical concerns that the American people do not benefit from at all. And I think most Americans understand that. Do you see... Are you seeing more um, advertising of bipartisanship in this round? I I continue to be shocked at hearing ads uh, for a, a candidate, you know, a member of Congress on one side of the aisle that are being voiced by someone on the other side. We had Denver Riggleman for Abigail Spamberger. We had Raphael Warnock invoking his work with Marco Rubio. Uh, we had Sarah Palin telling voters to make their second choice in Alaska's ranked choice voting, not a Republican, but one of her, uh, a Democrat. And I, I wonder, you know, I think that they are selling, they're selling this idea that uh, bipartisanship creates progress. Uh, and I, I wonder how long you think they can keep selling it and whether there's a little bit more of it now. I have this sort of theory that basically it kind of overlaps with the idea of support for this war, that this center is coming together to try to push out the elements in either party who have voiced any kind of opposition to it. And that there's sort of a coalition of what some people are calling the radical center happening and that this is part of some of these uh, bipartisan advertising. But I also wonder if I'm just sort of doing some literary criticism here of politics. No, I think some of that's happening. I must say in Pennsylvania, I don't see it happening much. I, I, I do see them as really trying to um, contrast the candidates as, as much as possible. And frankly, they're candidates that can be pretty, you know, fairly contrasted quite easily. Um, but I agree with you. I do think, look, uh, 
those calling for the end of this conflict are right now outliers is the truth of it. I mean, look at Tulsi Gabbard, who yeah. left the Democratic Party over it. Mm-hmm. And who I'm not sure, by the way, even joined the Republican. Party. No, she she didn't. Party. She didn't enjoy or she didn't join the Republican Party, but she's made five um, endorsements since she left the Democrats. And all of them have been MAGA Republican election deniers. OK, but are they people who are against the war also or no? That I don't know. That's a good question. Yeah, that's worth looking at. But in any case, I think people who are going against these armed conflicts are definitely going to be attacked even by their own parties. I mean, again, that did happen to Tulsi. And I think, well, and you saw that with this uh, progressive caucus letter too, how they were attacked by their own party mm-hmm. about that. So I do agree that uh, the wagons are circling um, the wagons of war circling against those who oppose the war. Yeah. And also, of course, you know, you, you, it raises the question of bedfellows because the people who are opposing uh, opposing this war or opposing funding for this war are not necessarily opposed to war. You know what I mean? Uh, and I suspect if, uh, you know, I, I think perhaps the likes of Kevin McCarthy would be pretty enthusiastic to, uh, you know, increase airstrikes in, in African countries or go to war uh, against another Muslim nation, for example. But this one he's getting a little bit tired of. And so then, you know, it's like, how do you how how do you manage those relationships in a way that's fruitful, I think, is a, a very big question. Yeah, and I do think that's true. I think also a lot of people who don't want war with Russia may want war with China. Right. I mean, as you say, they all got their wars. But I guess, you know, you got to fight one war at a time and against one war at a time if you're a peace activist. I mean, right now the war on the table is Russia, and I think that's the one we have to opposed mm-hmm. if those of us who who believe in in diplomacy and who believe in 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 a peaceful world mm-hmm. I also want to get into some of these very interesting stories about labor in the United States over the last week um, uh, first child labor Hyundai has just cut ties with a couple of suppliers in Alabama after reports last month that children had been working at these plants. Reuters reported that children as young as 12 were working in one plant and as young as 13 in another. The children were, and there were more than two, as I understand, the children were migrants from Guatemala who had been hired by recruiting or staffing firms in the area and sent to those plants. And so Hyundai said, this is unacceptable. We're cutting ties with these suppliers. We're going to investigate our entire network of U.S. suppliers. And I wonder... um, I wonder how common you think child labor is in the United States and how representative this is of what that labor looks like, you know, migrant children working in factories. I think I suspect that is not a real common thing. I think you you would see that more um, in terms of uh, the the agricultural industry, you know, uh, uh, children working as migrant farm workers and that sort of thing. And by, and by the way, that's even permitted to some extent that, you know, there are actually ex- exemptions for children to be able to work uh, in the fields. That's not even illegal, I think, uh, as early as at the age of 14. Uh, but I do think, you know, in various aspects of the economy, sure, there's child labor. But I think this may be a, a little more of a brazen example. I don't, I don't think you're going to see a lot of factories with kids working in. Mm-hmm. I also wonder about. So that may be the wave of the future. Who knows? Yeah, know. who knows? I wonder also about the, the stories about this incident repeatedly refer to these factories as being Korean owned or Hyundai controlled. 
which uh, has the effect of suggesting that what we have found are these little foreign islands where abuse has been allowed to take place. And I wonder what you make of that framing. Maybe that is the case, but it sort of seems like it's suggesting that this is not a problem in the United States. And I I wonder what you think about that. Yeah, I think that that's a cop out, obviously. I mean, it's happening in the U.S. Uh, It's happening in the South, by the way, and that's not a coincidence. It happens there because uh, labor laws are not as uh, strong as in the North and, and they're not as well enforced. So, you know, this has origins in domestic problems in the United States. Um, so, yeah, I think uh, to, to try to somehow distance ourselves from it and claim it's Koreans doing it really is, is not fair. Mm-hmm. Uh, the other interesting issue that's come up uh, a couple different places over the last week or so is prison labor uh, and slave labor or labor that uh, is compensated minimally and forced. In five states in the midterm elections, voters will have the option of changing language in their state constitutions that makes slavery illegal except. And the except is for some convicted felons. Uh, The people who are promoting these changes and who have written the new language for state constitutions that say slavery is unacceptable under any circumstances, no matter who you are, uh, they say the changes will not immediately affect the way prison labor is used, but that they could pave the way for more robust legal challenges to prison labor in the supply chain. And I, I suspect, I mean, probably not listeners to the show, uh, but I, out there in the rest of the United States, I suspect there are a lot of Americans who have no idea how pervasive prison labor is in our supply chains. And I wonder if you could, you know, remind them of how often that is used and also, you know, talk about what the impact of some of these constitutional changes could be. Well, first of all, we should start with the fact that the U.S. Constitution in the 13th Amendment, which prohibits slavery, does have an exception for Uh, prison Prison labor labor built into it. So what you're suggesting is being done in the States doesn't seem very different from what's already in the U.S. Mm -hmm. Constitution. Uh, In terms of, uh, you know, how pervasive this is, I think the figure I've seen is that there's about a million or so uh, prison laborers in the United States. And they do all sorts of things, including, as we know, fighting fires. Oh, yes, I remember that. Uh, Yeah for two bucks a day. Um, you know, if you call to make a reservation uh, on an airline, you might get a, a reservation agent who's sitting in jail. Um, Mayor Bloomberg got in trouble for when he was campaigning for president using prison labor to do phone solicitations for him. So, I mean, it, it's incredible uh, how pervasive this is throughout the U.S. economy. I, there's a, I mean, again, this is a, this is an anecdote on social media, right? But a woman writing that her sister was uh, transferred to a prison work farm in Virginia. It's one of the nicer prisons in the state, but she will still be required to work eight hours a day for 45 cents an hour. Yeah. See, I mean, right. I I also feel like it's interesting in the, in the um, conversations about Brittany Griner, uh, prison work farm sounds much nicer than penal colony. Yeah. But I suspect they're just the same thing. thing. Same thing. Sure. Yeah. I know or it's gulag. the same thing. Yes. Yeah, or, or, or gulag. gulag. Better than right. a gulag or a labor camp. Right. But yeah, it's the same thing. I mean, let's be honest, right? Yeah, it's all a matter. It's euphemisms. I mean, it, you know, people are being forced into labor. 
to work for practically for nothing. And, you know, most of these people are nonviolent offenders who will get out of jail at some point. And so and they'll have nothing. They'll have no savings. Right. Yep. Because they've been forced to work without being paid decently. You know, they have enough money for cigarettes inside the jail and um, they'll come out and be desperate, maybe end up having to steal again and be back in jail. Like yeah. this is not this is not a fair system at all. I also feel like, you know, again, while the, they're not going to change anything immediately, if the state, you know, if your prison sits in a state that changes its constitution to say slavery is is never allowed. It seems to me that that could pave the way for challenges, you know, uh, challenges to the use of prison labor that have more chance of success. Certainly, yeah, unless they have that carve out, you know, for prison labor. Right. I mean, that is the problem. Some of these will have that. But I agree with you. If it's just a blanket uh, prohibition on slavery, I agree that prison labor can be challenged. That's why the U.S. Constitution actually spells it out that prison labor is permitted despite. Yeah. Uh, uh, you know, the general prohibition on slavery. So, yeah, I agree. I mean, if 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 it's written in the right way, certainly it could be used that way. It's also it's interesting that uh, the question is going to go before voters in Alabama, Louisiana, Oregon, Tennessee and Vermont. Isn't Alabama, doesn't Alabama have a couple of notorious? Oh, yeah. Prisons? Alabama and Mississippi are among the worst in, in America. I mean, if yeah. Alabama, I mean, I don't know what chances there are, but if they alter their state constitutions to say slavery is not allowed, that could be right. that could be a pretty That's big, a big change. Deal. Yeah. 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 No, these are places that had, you know, chain gangs up till recently, you know, um, and that still have people doing very hard labor in those places. So, yeah, absolutely. I also wanted to ask you about statements yesterday from the National Labor Relations Board Union. They said the NLRB's budget hasn't been increased in nearly a decade uh, and that as a result, they've lost a third, more than a third of their field staff and half of their field offices and that basically they are not able to fulfill their mission. They are too underfunded to actually be able to do the job that they are supposed to do, Um, which is I mean, one came as a surprise to me. I don't know why I don't I don't track funding of different government bodies. So but the, the NLRB has been in the news a great deal lately. You know, yeah. uh, coming down on on actions by Amazon and Starbucks for for union busting. And so, uh, you know, it, it seems like as this wave of union organizing continues, the NLRB is going to have a very important role to play. And learning that they haven't had a, a budget increase since 2014 and f- that their own union feels like they can't do their job as a result would seem to, <laughs> you know, have a lot of implications for how this uh, labor moment plays out. And so I wonder if you could talk about what the NLRB funding crisis could mean, especially for workers. Yeah, well, first of all, this was done intentionally by Republican legislatures, which wanted to cripple the NLRB by by starving it of funding. If you don't have enough funding at at an agency like the NLRB and therefore don't have enough staff, what happens is case investigation and prosecution of cases gets incredibly delayed. And when when justice is delayed, it ends up being denied. I mean, the most you know, common example is if a union organizer is fired, which is illegal if you fire someone for union organizing, uh, but then they file a charge and it takes months to investigate, then months to go to hearing, and then months to get a decision from the NRB, meaning it takes a total of three or more years for that person to get ordered back to work, 
Well, guess what? That person probably is not going to go back to work there. They found another job. And by then, there's already been uh, a union election, which might have been lost because this person or persons were fired. Mm -hmm. uh, or they never even got to an election because people were too scared to sign union cards. The point is it allows employers to break the law with impunity. Yeah, maybe they pay a back pay amount three years later, but they have successfully destroyed the union movement, right? And that is the whole goal of not giving the NRB the funding it needs. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And, you know, I, I you still hear people defending Biden as a is a very pro-labor president, the best labor president that there has been in a while. A friend of mine who works at a union the other night was, was telling me this. And I was like, well, what about the pro act? Feels like you know, could have put a little more weight behind that, you know, whatever. Um, I, I wonder what you make of this characterization of Biden so far. Certainly, I, I, I'm, you know, I think it would be silly to suggest that he's, you know, he he has made some high profile statements in favor of workers. Uh, I think uh, what is Marty? What's his name? The labor secretary, Marty? Yeah, uh, from Boston, the mayor of Boston. Yeah. Bl blanking yeah. on his last yeah, name, too. but he was generally, you know, accepted as being a pretty good, uh, a, a pretty good pick, you know, for what you could have expected. He, he's done some things, but I, I don't know. I, I don't. What do you make of Biden's reputation as the, the labor president so far, especially in light of this? I think it's overblown. I mean, I think he's always had a good personal relationship with the union leaders. I think uh, union workers tend to like him. I think he does talk a good game. He does show up to things like the Labor Day Parade here in Pittsburgh. He'll show up here, uh, which he did this year. He showed up, at least for Labor Day, to a couple union halls. And again, he does say some good things, which is not unimportant. It's not unimportant yeah. when the president says pro-union things. It takes a good position on a strike or whatnot. But I would say in practice, you know, he's probably about average for a Democrat. He's certainly better, um, you know, than than most Republicans. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, uh, the most Republicans. I don't know how much better he is than than most. Uh, I think he's probably better than most Democrats as well. Uh, Marty Walsh. That was the that was the <laughs> name Walsh. that I couldn't remember. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Dan Kavalik, always great to talk to you. Where should our listeners go to find your most recent book or all of your books? Uh, well, my new one is on Amazon and for pre-order, but you can get it through Clarity Press as well directly. I'm on Twitter at Daniel M. Kavalik, and you can fo follow me there when I'm in Russia in the Donbass next week. Oh, oh, boy. I didn't know you were going there. That's interesting. Wow. Stay, take care of yourself. Yeah. Be careful. Thank you. Are you gonna Thank you very much. Are you going to watch this debate tonight, by the way, this uh, Oz Fetterman, Fetterman debate? Yeah. You going to watch? Oh, no, we lost him. Oh, shoot. He's definitely not. He's not going to watch it. Shoot. Uh, he probably won't watch it. No, yeah, I probably won't watch it. Are you going to watch it? I'm going to try to find it. Yeah, I'm going to watch it online. Mm-hmm. Uh, did we talk earlier about the conditions that they are uh, trying to set, the, the expectation setting around this debate? We did at the debate? very start of the show, mm -hmm. yeah. Uh, these these low expectations for Fetterman are a little bit uh, troubling to me. Yeah. And the, the New York Times just came up with a with an article, too, saying that the entire fate of the Senate is is resting on the shoulders now of Senator Catherine Cortez Masto of uh, Nevada. Mm -hmm. She was supposed to win that race. Mm -hmm. And now she's behind in, in every poll. So that may be I mean, even if Fetterman wins that that uh, if Masto loses, it could keep the Senate at 50 50. 
But then what happens if um, Raphael Warnock loses? Then Biden's not going to get another single judge passed for the next two years. It's going to be tough. Do you want to hear what Harvey Weinstein's lawyers are are offering as a defense for their client? Oh, tell me. It's pretty. This is in Variety. Uh, They are basically saying everyone in Hollywood had transactional sex in the past. It was uh, it was normal. They're saying it may have been unpleasant and now embarrassing, but everybody did it. Uh, he did it. They did it. The prior to me too. this was sex was a commodity. They're saying, look at Weinstein. He's not Brad Pitt. He's not George Clooney. Do you think these beautiful women had sex with him because he's hot? No, because he's powerful. So he's trying to say that all these women who are accusing him of assault were trying to sleep their way to the top and now they're bummed about it. You know, that is such utter nonsense because you find beautiful women on the arms of ugly men in Washington all the time. I've been one of those women. (laughs) 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 Whatever. People are interesting. People. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. But then forcing sex on someone and making it transactional is not normal. No. It's criminal. Or or even if it's like even if it is relatively commonplace in your industry, that doesn't actually make it absolutely defensible. Absolutely not. It's ridiculous. Uh, yeah, no, that's that's outrageous. Um, oh, there was some other piece of news that I was going to tell you that I feel that felt related, and now I've lost it. That's okay. Um, It'll come up. Somewhat related. The the Washington Post again has a uh, it has a big article on female bodybuilders, which is I saw that. Yeah, um, I will say if anybody wants to Louis, do you know Louis Theroux, the document the documentarian yes. for the I think he did work for the BBC for a while. Yes. Well, he mm-hmm. did a documentary on. Um, it was on female bodybuilders. It really? was really good. Yeah, it was really good. It was it was really interesting. But it kind of seems like I mean I think for a lot of like niche athletes, yeah, there is a, male or female. In order to get by, there kind of is a level of sexual exploitation that you you engage in. Uh, you know, from a sort of black and white to to a kind of gray area, which is unpleasant, right? But if you're you're in one of these, uh, you know, if if you are devoted to one of these passions and you don't make very much money off it. Right. You you got to try and make money off the people who sort of see you as some kind of uh, arm candy on the spectrum to fetish object. You know, I remember being in college and Senator John. uh, What was his name from Texas? He was the chairman of the Armed Services Committee. He was supposed to be George H.W. Bush's secretary of defense. Mm. And then he couldn't make it through the Senate. Mm. Anyway, guy was like five foot four. Looked like. He, he, his face had just been taken off of a, of a downspout at Notre Dame Cathedral, oh, no. right? <laughs> and he had the most beautiful women in Washington on his shoulder. And it was because he was so powerful. You want to have dinner at the White House? Go with Senator Tower, John Tower. Mm-hmm. Go with Senator Tower and be his girlfriend for a couple of months, you know? And that's the way it was. But, but he wasn't putting them in movies and making them stars and yeah. forcing them to do anything. It's a, it's a different world. Yeah. I'll give you one more tidbit and then we're going to come back and have a more serious conversation about uh, COVID and what the, what we are supposed to expect right. this fall, what yes. we're supposed to do, what, what vaccines are supposed to take or not take, yeah. what's effective, what's not effective. But I have one more uh, sort of uh, celebrity tidbit for you. Uh, chess grandmaster, oh, Hans Zeman. Yes. Suing Magnus Carlsen yes. for a hundred million dollars. Yeah, good luck. Yeah, um, 
he's he's suing them for uh you know for being accused of cheating. Yeah, of cheating. Uh, maybe he'll. I mean, who knows? I don't know if he did cheat or not. I don't know how don't they'll know. find out. I yeah, we'll, we'll see. Hans Hans says his lawsuit speaks for itself, so I guess we'll have to read the lawsuit to figure out what's <laughs> supposed to be happening. All right, we're going to take a quick break here and come back uh, with some conversation that maybe will clarify what exactly we should be doing to prepare for this winter Gonna and ask. the COVID wave that seems to be coming. Absolutely. You're listening to Political Misfits on Radio Sputnik. We're live in D.C. and we'll be right back. Misfits on Radio Sputnik, where we bring you news, politics, and culture without the red and blue treatment. I'm John Kiriakou, and I'm here in the studio with my co-host, Michelle Witte. Before we get to our next guest, there was another issue that we just didn't have time to talk about yesterday, and that was a comment that President Biden made over the weekend saying that he intended to run for re-election. Um, it was funny to see how that split commentary on, on social media. Half of the people said, Biden said he's running again. Yeah. The other half said Biden gave himself an out to not run again because he didn't say I am running again. He yeah. said, I intend to run again, yeah. which is actually consistent with what he said in the past, that if, for example, his doctors said you shouldn't run again, then he won't run again. My guess is my hope is that somebody whispers in his ear, you really shouldn't run again. Yeah. Um, you know, you and I both read the the New York Post every day. I, I read it more for entertainment than for news. Or sometimes yeah. they cover issues that that other papers don't cover, like the Hunter Biden laptop, sure. for example. Um, but there's like this daily rundown on gaffes that that Joe Biden makes. For example, yesterday. Yesterday was the 50th anniversary of the start date of the White House gardener. Okay. okay. He's been working. Cool. For 50 years. Wow. In the White the House same Garden. Dude. Same dude. He's what a gig. like 70 something years old, oh, loves man. the job. You would, have wa- you would have been able to watch your plants grow to such great Isn't that amazing? heights. And yeah, that's. Yeah, uh, exactly. You plant a happen. tree, you plant an oak tree, for example. Now it's got to be, you know, 90 feet tall. So it would be amazing. So Biden went out there and shook his hand, and Jill Biden was there, and, and they, they took pictures with the guy. And then Joe Biden got lost in the trees. Oh, <laughs> no. Swear to God, he actually got confused and got lost in the trees. Jill Biden went after him and he turned and said, with an earshot of journalists, which way am I supposed to go now? Uh, yeah. I mean, how big is it? I mean, it's just a couple of trees. <laughs> no. and the White House is right here. It's, a, it's 100 feet away it's from you. It's a big house there. It's, it's a big, the house. big white one. Yeah. So this kind of thing happens all the time. And it's, it's just Every once in a while, I do wonder, though, if you were just constantly going from place to place, I don't know. Maybe I would end up doing the same thing. I, I'm not sure. I don't know. Hey, do you see uh, Hope Hicks is going to talk to the January 6th committee? I did not. That's just come out in the last uh, couple of hours. She is going to testify. Wow. She's going to sit for a transcribed interview with the House January 6th committee today. Wow. That's that's a big deal. Yep. Yep. So that's we'll, a big deal. We'll see. Yeah. You know, they haven't said yet, uh, at least publicly, what Donald Trump's intention is. 
So another thing to wait and see. Yep. Is he going to try to wait this out? I think we have our guest on the line. The COVID-19 pandemic caused historic learning setbacks for America's children, cutting across all races, regions, and socioeconomic backgrounds. It erased decades, they said, of academic progress and widened racial disparities, especially in math. Now the country's preparing for a new COVID uh, strain, one that apparently has already begun spreading in California. It appears to be less lethal than the original COVID, um, but it's more easily transmissible, especially among children, and it poses a threat to those with immune deficiencies. No surprise there. In the meantime, the number of monkeypox uh, cases has decreased since summer, but has claimed the lives of six more people in the past week. We're going to talk about all this with Dr. Monica Gandhi. She is a physician and a professor of medicine at the University of California at San Francisco, specializing in infectious diseases and global medicine, and she's director of the UCSF Gladstone Center for AIDS Research. Excited to have her. Welcome, Dr. Gandhi. I was afraid that was going to happen. Yeah, we heard that sound. We heard that sound that someone was on the line and then dropped on the line, so we're going to have there to There she is. Up. No, no, I think she's there. Are you there, Dr. Gandhi? No, I'm here. I'm here. Yay. Fantastic. I can hear you. Can you hear me? Yes, we can indeed. Great. Excited <laughs> to have you. Thank you so much for joining us. This is the first time you've been on the show. We're very pleased about that. So first, let me ask Thank you, you so much. Let me ask you about what seems to be the constantly changing structure of COVID-19. It's not the brutally lethal virus that it was two years ago, although some 375 people are still dying from COVID every day. Now the dominant strains are variants of the original virus or even subvariants. Has treatment changed at all as the virus has changed? Have preventative measures changed? Yes. You know, the way to think of it is we're still in the Omicron uh, variant. Uh. I know that these new names keep on coming up, XBB, uh, BQ1, BQ1.1. Right. These are all forms of Omicron. And Omicron is less virulent than Alpha and Delta are previous strains. So that's the one good thing. And fundamentally, we have much more population immunity in our population. So what I mean by that is we have high rates of vaccination. And unfortunately, we got a lot of natural immunity through all these subvariant waves over the last since November when we saw BA1. So we just are a well better equipped to deal with it with this much immunity and a less virulent subvariant. We're totally in a different place than we were two years ago mm -hmm. or even one year ago. Do you think COVID is something that is going to be around permanently now? Do we do we just have to accept it? And if so, do we eventually get to the point where we can generally ignore it like the flu? Or do we have to get boosters every six months from now on? So it's a very good question. So the answer to do we have to live with it is unfortunately yes. Mm -hmm. uh, can you hear me? Yes. Sad. Oh, sorry. Um, the unfortunate thing. Oh, wait, can you hear me? Yes, please go right ahead. Uh, yes, what I was going to say is, unfortunately, why can't we eradicate it? There's four reasons, just very briefly. We can't eradicate COVID because there are 29 species of animals that have it. There's so many animal reservoirs, we'll never get rid of it. Second is that you, it can look like other infections. Remember, the only infection we've ever gotten rid of is smallpox, and smallpox only look like itself. Third is that it has, it can spread even when you're pre-symptomatic. Right. And fourth is that um, 
we have great vaccines, but they don't sterilize us. They don't, you can still get infected after a vaccine. You just get protected against severe disease. We'll never get rid of it. And it's a very hard truth, but it's true. Only China is pursuing an eradication strategy, I think a great detriment to their uh, people. And we're going to have to live with it. So what does that mean? We vaccinate, we treat with Paxlovid if someone's older, and yes, we boost. How often will we need boosting? Well, importantly, other countries are boosting only older people. And the World Health Organization on March 30th said we're going to have to boost, but probably only vulnerable people every year. Vulnerable people, there was a huge study from the UK that shows who's still vulnerable to severe infection, and it's people who are older over 65, people who have co multiple comorbidities or an immunosuppressants or have chronic kidney disease. We will need to boost them every year. And then as we get older, we're going to need to be boosted every year, even if we're still younger right now. So it will be something just like flu that we have to unfortunately live with, but we have very good tools, including treatment. We have better treatments for COVID than we do for influenza. Paxlovid really works. Oh, how interesting. I didn't know that. With this new report on how COVID-19 has led to major educational setbacks, and with hindsight being 2020, of course, should we have done something differently, do you think, in the way we shut down schools and instituted online learning? It seemed to work at the time, but now we know that it clearly didn't work. What do you think? Have we lost you? I just got back, and sorry about this poor connection. Oh, no, that's okay. Um, but I think I understood the question, okay. which is... Go right ahead. Yeah, I mean, in hindsight, I I don't I don't think there's any way to deny that um, that other countries um, of our similar sort of socioeconomic status uh, did keep schools open. So UK, Europe, made a real um, kind of effort to open schools sooner. Um, they used mitigation. Often they sometimes didn't, depended on the region. Um, but because children were so much less at risk, which is a very bizarre aspect of this virus, by the way, usually uh, many viruses affect the very young and the very old. But this virus spared the young. Um, and yes, I think in retrospect, we should have worked harder on schools. Dr. Gandhi, I have a devil's advocate question for you. Many of our listeners haven't been vaccinated and don't believe that the vaccines are helpful. Some of them believe that the vaccines are dangerous and they point to deaths uh, that they say are associated with vaccines or or they point to testing and say that testing wasn't um, appropriately diligent. How would you respond to that? Are vaccine related deaths any different than deaths associated with, let's say, the flu vaccine or any other vaccine? And because the COVID-19 vaccine is an mRNA best based shot, is it even really a vaccine? Does any of that matter? Yes. I mean, it really is a vaccine. It's very fair. It's the first time we've employed mRNA technology for a pathogen, but it actually had been developed 10 years ago in the context of another coronavirus that turned bad called MERS. It's just that MERS kind of went away on its own and we didn't need it. So it's not new. It actually is very powerful vaccine technology because your own body makes up um, the protein and you raise a very strong immune response to it. And um, it is a great vaccine. It's just that the issue is this, it doesn't prevent all infections. It prevents severe disease. But I can tell you as someone 
works in a hospital, that I saw clearly that those who were unvaccinated, especially during Delta, were definitely more likely to get sick than those who are vaccinated. This is this is the truth. Now, it does have side effects. We should be aware of side effects and think about how to, to boost younger people. For example, young Younger men are more likely to get side effects, younger males, and um, myocarditis is a side effect. And so we want to increase the dosing, the, the duration between doses to minimize that side effect. But it is a vaccine. It works. And believe me, it has saved millions and millions of lives. Amen to that. Dr. Gandhi, can you tell us about monkeypox? It doesn't seem to be much more of a big deal than chickenpox or shingles. Is the scare coming from the media, or is this something that the medical community is actually worried about? You know, what happened is I think we were just coming off COVID's worst out, uh, effects when monkeypox, this new outbreak, started in what are called non-endemic countries. We actually used to see monkeypox in Western Central Africa, mm. but we hadn't seen it in the UK, Europe, Australia, Canada, US spreading like this. And so there was a scare. I will say the media went a little bit um, crazy. Uh, and what I mean by that is the media said things like, can we open schools? Oh, no, right. we have another you know, pandemic. It's not at all what it is because it's sexually transmitted, mainly between men who have sex with men. It really didn't spread to a wider community. There was no effect on schools, no very little effect on children. And so and then the cases have come down very nicely, very, very well. Since mid-August, we're in a very low um, uh, we're in a high case fall, low numbers of cases worldwide because vaccines work and because we had a vaccine for it. So, so we didn't, we probably didn't have to panic to this degree, um, in the media. And I think part of the reason the media panicked is we were coming off COVID. I think you're right. Um, final question. You're an expert in global medicine and infectious diseases. When I was at the CIA, the leadership was always worried about always talking about the possibility of a pandemic because of the threat of bringing worldwide travel and therefore worldwide operations to a halt. That's very cynical, of course. But are there other viruses out there that we should be keeping an eye out for? Other SARS-related viruses, Ebola, something like that? Well, at this point, what's happened is we've sort of kept away from each other for two years, right? And so there are children who have seen very few viruses, like, you know, everyone keeps on marveling, oh, I haven't had a cold in two or three years. Mm -hmm. One issue with that is it can create something called an immunity debt, D-E-B-T, uh, uh, a debt where you don't, you don't confront a lot of viruses, you don't hone your immune system. Children are more susceptible to that than we are as adults. And unfortunately, we are seeing RSV, respiratory syncytial virus, and influenza hitting children harder this year than in the previous two years. It also could be that as COVID comes down, because our we're kind of in a lull with COVID, it's going to start going up again, but the cases went down. That creates a vacuum, and it's called viral interference. These other viruses happily come in to take its place, uh, unfortunately, RSV and influenza and parainfluenza. And so we are seeing children get infected with RSV and influenza. We do have treatments. We have we do have treatments for RSV and we have vaccines for influenza, which is why if we can, please everyone get their influenza shot and know that we have treatments for RSV and upcoming vaccines. We're getting into the vaccine world with RSV for older people and younger people. We're always going to have to fight to stay on top of respiratory pathogens. 
Fantastic. Thank you for joining us, Dr. Monica Gandhi. Dr. Gandhi is a physician and a professor of medicine at the University of California at San Francisco, specializing in infectious diseases and global medicine. And she's also director of the UCSF Gladstone Center for AIDS Research. You're listening to Political Misfits on Radio Sputnik. We'll take one more short break and come back. Misfits on Radio Sputnik, where we bring you news, politics, and culture without the red and blue treatment. I'm Michelle Witte. I'm here with John Kiriakou. This is a week of a lot of um, economic news. Yes, indeed. We're going to get different indicators. Thursday especially. Thursday especially. Mm -hmm. Um, But one of the tidbits we have gotten is about U.S. home prices. Now, I swear, we saw a headline that said home Oh, maybe it was home sales fell by 20%. Oh, shoot. What, I want home prices to come exactly, down. Exactly. No, what home prices have done is lose momentum. Okay. So they're still uh, rising, all right. but they are not rising as fast. Uh, home prices in August rose 13% from the year before. Uh, but the prior month, it had been 15%. The month before that, it was 18%. So the, the rate of increase is slowing down. Um, yeah, not, ah, well. not as exciting. I'm really trying to find that 20% headline that we both saw. We did. We US saw it. Homes, well, while you're looking for that percent, 20% what, what yeah, was it? What? Oh, it's next year. That's what it was. They could, this is a CBS story. It. They could fall as much as 20% next year. So it hasn't started yet, but yeah, CBS is saying, um, home prices, home prices have plunged during the second half of 2022. Now, not around that, here. They haven't. Plunging is not the same as increasing at a slower rate. That's right. All of this economic stuff is written so confusingly. Um, but they could fall by as much as 20% next year as mortgage rates climb and the housing market normalizes. So, I mean, to some degree, that is good news. I wanted to tell you about a grandmother who went missing in Indonesia. Oh, no. Yes. She was found. Unfortunately, she was found inside the stomach of a 22-foot-long python. I knew you were going to tell me this. I knew you were going to tell. They're always finding people inside pythons in Indonesia. It's like once a year. Once a year, a human is found inside a python in Indonesia, for sure. I went to Indonesia, I don't know, about 13, 14 years ago. I barely saw anything beyond a bird. Well, you're in Kuala Lumpur, right? Yeah. Yeah. You're in a giant city. Yeah. It's a big country. Lots of islands. Yeah, it is. It's a big country. Yeah. Yeah. And they even have video of them. Well, you can imagine. I won't go into uh, into any more details. There was also an odd case. I'm going to be very careful with my language here. Okay. uh, That I mentioned to you earlier today, also from The New York Post, about a German doctor who wanted to try something with his girlfriend. Yeah. Trying to spice up their private life. Yeah. So he slathered cocaine all over his uh, all over his private parts. And soon afterwards, she died of an overdose. Her girlfriend died of an overdose. Yeah. Yeah. So the German court, he was found not guilty of murder and manslaughter. Well, I mean, I don't think guilty of murder unless he made her ingest it. But you could like making manslaughter. Sure. I guess like make a mistake if you accidentally hit someone with your car. I mean, you still killed them even if you didn't intend to. Well, her family sued and um, and the, the court ended up ordering him to pay for her funeral. 
So justice in the German court system right also, there. Also, uh, speaking of lawsuits, Travis Scott has now privately settled. I, the first one was a few days ago. I think now he's settled two lawsuits from that Astro World Festival in Houston uh-huh. last year, almost a, almost a year ago today, where 10 people were, were killed and uh, allegedly 5,000 people were injured. Uh, Scott is a defendant in uh, numerous lawsuits, and I think it, just the first two of them have been settled. Uh, I don't think we have any idea what the amount was. You know, I hope that guy has insurance because otherwise, I don't know how anybody survives something like this. I mean, yeah. Yeah, man, we talked about that a lot of the time. It was just so depressing. And it did seem like it did seem irresponsible. It seemed like there was a lot of irresponsibility in how he reacted, but also to how the whole festival was set up. So, yes. Yeah. I mean, he must. There's also, if you want a little depressing graphic in the Politico newspaper newsletter, um, you have a, a rare story about the U.S. mega drought, mm-hmm. and it's got a map of parts of the country where drought is supposed to develop uh, or continue or worsen. Where I mean, is it's that? got a spectrum from uh, drought tendency, none, develop, continue or worsen, improve, end. The block of the country where drought is expected to develop, continue or worsen is quite a lot. Uh, it's in the Politico newsletter. From today. Yep. Looking more right than, now. More than 80 percent of the continental oh, yeah. U.S. is experiencing unusually dry conditions or full on drought. The largest proportion wow. since Noah began tracking 20 years ago. And winter is expected to intensify and spread the drought conditions. Wow. Look at this map. Yeah, it's pretty grim. The only place where you're going to be just fine is uh, Alaska, Maine, Pennsylvania and West Virginia. Yeah. That's it. We are, according to Noah, supposed to get a, a milder winter than usual. I saw that. Which is which is sort of interesting. Yeah, that's going to be nice uh, There's a story also here in BuzzFeed about uh, your boy Adnan Syed. Oh, yeah? Asking, what do they have to say? Um, if, they're saying if there were a new trial without the failures of the original process, a jury could still rule to convict Syed. I guess if we've decided that there's not going to be a new trial, right? No. Isn't that the prosecutors dropped, yep. dropped those charges? Yep, they elected not to retry so, him. Uh, he has been, he's been sprung. The charges have been dropped. He's been cleared, but it's not necessarily the same as I guess being, uh, assumed to be innocent by. Very, very interesting. One last thought. It turns out that New York city is not the rattiest city. The city with the most rats. Can I guess? I think I know what it is. Is it Chicago? It's Chicago. I remember seeing, I think DC is like number three. Number two. Yes, number two. And New York is number three. Take that, New York. How do you like that? You think your rats are scary? We just don't whine about it all the time. Just New Yorkers with their grid of streets. (laughs) Why do the streets in DC curve around? How am I supposed to understand this circle? Oh my God, I hear that all the time from people. Yeah, yeah. Idiots. If you grew up around here, you you have a little bit of a chip on your shoulder about New Yorkers. And listen, I'll say some of my best friends are from New York. But just yeah, stop, too. stop complaining that our streets aren't in a grid. I'm sorry my city's interesting. Right. Sorry our rats are monstrous and terrifying. <laughs> <laughs> Stealing that crown. All right, we're going to go. We'll have more rat talk tomorrow, I'm sure. Thanks to everybody who joined us. Thanks to all of you for listening. Uh, on behalf of John and myself, we'll see you tomorrow.